He's building these, he's building bridges. He's, he's tearing down barriers. Daniel uh, and his friends, they're ministering in the midst of being um, captive, right? And, and so God is still on the move. God is answering prayers in the middle of their mayhem, in the middle of the muddled situation. God is moving. And so, um, I hope that for me, like as I'm reading through Daniel here, I'm finding so much encouragement, like, oh God, you can still move when things don't look like, you know, and I told you guys, I read a book called The Insanity of God. Uh, One of my friends read that uh, right after I read it. um, And he's like, dude, I just ordered nine copies of this. I'm giving it to literally everyone I know. He's like, this is insane. All right, um, because we think about it, right? Like we're we're so Americanized, you know. You know, I couldn't worship this morning because it was seventy-seven degrees in the room. It was just stuffy. God wasn't yeah. And we, we it's silly though, right? And so we constrict God to boxes that we create. And I just encourage you this morning, uh, just to know that God's bigger than all of that. Uh, then every circumstance, God is bigger than that, and He's in our midst. And um, so what I want to do, uh, again, is we've been doing this, and I'm like, let's do it again. Why are we going to do it again, Andy? Because I believe it's so good, and that's why we're going to do it. Uh, there's, there's a little book in the Bible called Psalms, and, um, and uh, we've been reading and praying Psalm 139, uh, and a couple verses out of that. And so, so what I want to do is, again, why don't we just say this? Um, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, okay? And then we're going to pray this together, all right? And so my simple prayer is this. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. And so let's, let's pray this, if we can, 130, uh, Psalm 139, verse 23, it, it says this, and let's, let's again, let's pray this together. Matter of fact, if, if you have the ability and you're in the room, would you stand up? Let's pray this together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Don't sit down yet. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Let's just, we're going to take 10 seconds and we're going to reflect on what we just prayed, okay? Let's do that. Now let's do this again. Let's, uh, let's pray. I'm going to pray again, that prayer. And, and it, we're not, I'm not twisting God's arm. I just want you to know that. We're, we're literally saying, come Holy Spirit and do the work that only you can do. Let's pray this again. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And I want to encourage you, um, again, God in a box, right? That whole thought that we sometimes do. Um, You can do this on your own. Like during the week, you can open your Bible up. You can open the Bible app up to Psalm 139, uh, 23 and 24. And and you can pray this prayer. Okay, and I, I really what I would encourage you to do is to actually do that. Right? And to take some time, create some space to do that. And what I believe is this, that that God will begin to transform your heart and your mind, your spirit. And I believe that that his his life will begin to flow in and through you. So I just encourage you you to do that. Don't just just do it on Sunday mornings, right? Um, So we've seen this... uh, as we've gone through, you know, God hears prayers, He answers prayers, His, his wisdom is not always conventional, you know, human-like wisdom. Uh, maybe some of us have experienced that where He's asked us to do things that, that don't particularly make sense, okay? Uh, as I look at the few people that are in this room, I see people that I know that He's asked to do things that haven't made sense. But then God came through and he, he supplied the need, he supplied the means, uh, and, and he was enough. And, and so uh, we talked about God's eternal kingdom being established in humility, right? And through humility, and, and we see the, the left-handed and the right-handed dealing, the right hand where we would wield a sword and we would overpower people and we would physically, you know, push them into the kingdom and then we see the left-handed approach of Jesus that, that loves people into the kingdom, that pulls people into uh, the kingdom. And so we're going to go into chapter 5 today uh, of Daniel. And uh, it is pretty amazing. And there's so many things. I just want to give you a forewarning right now. I am not going to cover everything in Daniel 5. Um, It's funny when you speak, uh, and please don't stop doing this, I just think it's funny, is um, inevitably someone says, yeah, but you know there was this too. Yes, yeah, Um, I didn't have time to read the entire commentary to you, okay, Uh, but but I want to say this, like, we're going to go into some nooks and crannies of what Daniel 5 has. I'm not going to cover everything that's there, and, uh, but we're going to cover some, some stuff. And it's, it's a lot of verses, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a synopsis. But before we do this, I just want to encourage you with this. It's, it's words from C.S. Lewis uh, in a book called Mere Christianity. And he remarks about following Jesus like this, and I, I love this quote. Uh, he says, The proper motto is not, Be good, sweet maid, and let who can be clever, but be good, sweet maid, and don't forget this involves as being or being as clever as you can. God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, 
brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his or her intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. And I I share this quote with you from Lewis only to encourage you, but also at the same time to challenge you. To say, hey, let's not sit idly by. Let's pursue God. Let's study His Word. Let's not say, well, God isn't doing anything right now, but neither am I, right? So we're, we're supposed to be pursuing God, and He is pursuing us. And I just want to encourage you with that because when, when I read that quote for the first time, um, like I've said before, uh, you know, it kind of hit me like a sock full of pennies, is it's not our job to sit idly by. Like, we're in partnership. Jesus talks about this as, as he talks about us being yoked to him. And so we're in a partnership. We're working with him. And so I just want to encourage you that uh, this morning. I'm going to give a synopsis of this chapter, um, but I want to give a quick context because it seems like when we look at this chapter, we just jump from one king to the other, and there's not really um, a resolve, if you will, for King Nebuchadnezzar. It was just kind of like, okay, now we're to Belshazzar. What what happened there? Um, and so we see Belshazzar, who is the king that we're currently going to be, uh, who, is, who is the character in this, one of the characters in chapter 5. Um, and he's kind of not the king. He's kind of the second in command. His dad actually was the king, all right? But his dad got into a religious dispute with uh, uh, the temple of of Marak, right? And so there's this, and he was a worshiper of, of sin, and so the sun god, and, and so there was this dispute. So he ends up going away to what is now, uh, nowadays, Saudi Arabia, and leaves his son. And there's some confusing language in there then because it says that Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Just want to clear that up, all right? Uh, he's, not the, he's not the biological son. It would be used as in he is the the predecessor to, okay, Nebuchadnezzar. So I just want to clear up that context uh, a little bit. There's a lot more historical information there, and I want to encourage you with that C.S. Lewis quote, go find it, okay, and and go look it up. And so here's Belshazzar, and um, we're thrown into a banquet. Right? And it says it's a banquet for a thousand nobles, and they're feasting, and they're drinking, and they're, there's probably great wine that's being served there. Um, and so the purpose of the banquet was most likely to unite all of the leaders because there was an imminent attack that is coming, all right? And they might have already got word of this. It's possible that, that the father of Belshazzar had already been overtaken in that land of Saudi Arabia. So they might have got word. And what they typically do at, at banquets like this is they come together and they want to be in one accord, right? Because there's a war that is about to happen. And so um, we see Belshazzar who is uh, going to be having, hosting this banquet, and then he calls for these cups that Nebuchadnezzar had brought okay, from 
from Judea, he brought these cups along with the exiles, and they were silver and gold cups, and they were cups that were found in the temple, all right, and where that was, that was holy, that was sacred. And Belshazzar calls and commands that the cups be brought in, and they begin to pour the wine in these cups, and they begin to drink, and his concubines and his wives and the people that were there begin to drink out of these cups as they're worshiping uh, gods of wood and silver uh, and other materials. And so they take what is sacred um, and, and they use it for non-sacred purposes. And, and so we see this debauchery, it continues, and then suddenly a human hand appears and begins to write on the wall. I don't know about you guys, but that's a party stopper, all right? Uh, if you're at a party and all of a sudden this human hand starts writing on the wall, I can only imagine that it's not probably microprint. I, you know, they're writing. I don't know how big it was. I don't know how small it was. A human hand is writing on the wall, okay? And so uh, it says in there, I mean, the king is, is nervous, right? Is, is just engulfed with fear. His, his knees are shaking. Uh, he even falls down. And here's what he says, uh, in fear, he shouts out to the wise men, tell me what that means. Tell me what it means. They come in, and, and this is almost deja vu. They can't figure it out. They don't know what it means. Uh, at this point, the king is even more nervous. And, and so you can imagine the cold sweat. You can, what is going on? What does this mean? So everybody at the banquet is scared. The queen mother, it says, which I believe is a, is a remnant of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, runs into the room and she goes, hey, there, there's a man who can, who can tell us what it says. And uh, he served your father, Nebuchadnezzar. And your father, or Nebuchadnezzar, named him Belteshazzar. His name's Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar called him Belteshazzar. And we got to remember, Belteshazzar is the name, remember, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's God, right? And so uh, Daniel comes in, he has great wisdom, and she doesn't understand the concept of the Most High God either because she says that he is filled with the spirit of the gods, right? And that should sound familiar if you've, gone, if you've been going through Daniel with us, because Nebuchadnezzar said that. He's filled with the spirit of the gods, not the most high God. And so uh, Daniel steps in the scene, and uh, he, he responds to the king, and the king asks him this question, which I thought was kind of silly. Uh, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah? by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, clearly, people have already told him this is Daniel. Uh, I think the king is what he's doing is he's asserting his authority and reminding him of Daniel's place. Hey, remember, you're in exile. You're here, and uh, I own you type thing, okay? And so he's saying this, and so he arrogantly reminds him of his position as a captured person in exile, um, and then uh, he says, uh, my wise men can't figure this out. Can you do this? And uh, 
Daniel, I wonder if Daniel was thinking something like, oh, wow, that's a shock. They can't, I've never seen this before. These guys can't figure this out. Uh, and so uh, he offers them, or the king offers them the reward that he had offered before. He said, you, I forgot to mention that. The reward was, hey, I'm going to clothe you in purple or royal garments. I'm going to give you a gold chain. I am going to um, make you third in command. That's what I'm going to do. I love Daniel's response to this because it's very clear that Daniel knows the reality that the king cannot offer him anything that supersedes that of God. And uh, in Daniel 5, 17, he says this, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I tell you, but I will tell you what the writing means. And I want to say this. Can we, we probably read it sometimes like, hey, keep your gifts, pal. I don't, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't translate the humility that he's shown over his life. When we insert that voice, I, I think we're doing that uh, um, an injustice. I really think that he just said, hey, you can keep your gifts or give them to someone else. Um, but I will tell you what the writing means. All right. And so that kind of sets things up. We like things to be a little more dramatic, right? Um, but, but Daniel then, he runs through this brief history lesson about Nebuchadnezzar, his power, his greatness, his pride, his humbling, and finally his understanding of the Most High God. Uh, and that leads us to this key verse here, or key verses in, in Daniel 5, 22 and 23. He says this, um, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you are his successor, O Belshazzar. And you knew all of this. You knew about all of what happened, in other words. And yet you have not humbled yourself, uh, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you breath of life and controls your destiny. And so that is presented. And that's such a key verse is you knew. You knew, yet you still decided to take things in your own hand. You knew about your your. Uh, your Nebuchadnezzar's pride. You knew about what happened to him. You knew that he ended up for seven periods of time eating grass like a cow and living like a wild animal and the dew of heaven resting on him. You knew about that. Yet you still chose to arrogantly ignore and then go up a level and say, hey, bring the stuff from that temple that Nebuchadnezzar's talked about. We're going to drink from those while we worship these other gods. And so Daniel gives them the interpretation, and he says, Mine, Tiko, Parson. Mine, Mine, Tiko, Parson. Mine, Mine, Mine. Hey, there's emphasis here. Your days are numbered. Tiko, you've been weighed. Uh, Parson, uh, your kingdom is divided. And you're going to die. Whoa. How many of you guys would 
just love to deliver that message to a king, right? Sign me up. I don't think I'm going to say this. I could be in dangerous grounds. I don't think we would want to say it out loud, but we say it in our hearts about people and about things, you know? Like, oh, man, I'm so glad that that happened to this person. Just a thought. Daniel's rewarded. He accepts the reward. We don't know why. Maybe he knew that it was going to be temporary anyways. He knew that, hey, tonight you're kind of out, okay? And so he accepts the reward. That very night, um, the king, Belshazzar, is killed, uh, and then Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom. Wow. Okay, how are you going to connect this one, Andy? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think it's like this, is... um, We see these continual themes through Daniel, right? Pride. Pride is is the is leads and is the foundational stone to demise. We see that over and over again. We see that again in in Belshazzar, who not only he says, you know, not only am I just gonna be arrogant and prideful and realize all this is what I've done, I'm also gonna step it up a notch and I'm just gonna spit in the most high God's face. Bring those cups this way. Okay? And um so there's the pride, uh, and then openly disrespecting the Most High God. And then, and then we see um, Daniel being used again. Daniel's hearing, right, and he's being used. And, and, but what I want to do is focus on two things today. And, and, and the first thing is Daniel's response. And then I want to focus on Belshazzar's blasphemy, okay, his, his sacrilege, if you will. Uh, And then what can we learn from that? So Daniel's response is different. Daniel's response to King Nebuchadnezzar is completely different than the response that he had to um, King Belshazzar. And it it differs in this, where Daniel was very uh, sympathetic and paused and even said, oh my gosh, I just wish this wouldn't happen to you. He's very forward and says, here's how it's going to be. You didn't listen, even though you knew. And so here's what's going to happen. I want to say in both of those situations that God is speaking, right? Um, And so are there moments that we respond like Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar? And are there moments that we respond like he did to Belshazzar? Okay. And then what what are we called to do? And that has to say, that has to go like this. Is the God of the Old Testament the same God of the New Testament. And I think there's a resounding yes to that, right? In in the Old Testament, guess who's the judge? God. In the New Testament, guess who's going to judge? God. Right? And so we have this resounding yes. God is the same. His character hasn't changed. It It hasn't moved any. Well, and then we get this thing in the New Testament, though, called grace. Oh, grace. You see the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and in the New Testament writings and, and the Pauline uh, uh, writings and, and the epistles and, and all these uh, letters. You see grace kind of overtaking. And what we do, I think, is this. In our modern day, we think, well, is the New Testament and, and, the, and, and Paul and, and all these New Testament writers, are they calling us to a place of moral neutrality then where we can't really say what's wrong and what's right? And I think the answer there is a resounding no. 
Well, if, if, if we're not to call down fire on people, then what are, we, what are we supposed to do as the church? Like, what's the role of the body of Christ today? Is it to judge or is it to love or, or what is it? And I want to propose to you today that it's to offer the words of life and not of condemnation. Now, we overuse this thing, right, called, there's an old saying, and we don't really say it anymore, and I've talked about it with a couple of friends, and, you know, it's kind of faux pas at this point. But I even want to say it this morning. There's going to be a couple of things faux pas I say today, and I'm just going to need you to roll with it and think about it, let it hit you, let it offend you, and then we'll talk, please. Uh, There's an old saying that says, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. I always thought that was a weird phrase too. I get it, but I always thought it was weird. I'm going to break out the big boy today too. I meant to bring the copy, but I forgot it again, guys. So, um, You guys are like, what is that book? This is just a collection of C.S. Lewis's stuff, okay? Um, He says this. In the seventh chapter of the second book, or it might be the third book, anyways, it's titled Forgiveness. I encourage you to look it up. He says this, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's uh, actions, but not hate the bad man. Or as they would say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this was a silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did, but not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I dislike, I might dislike my own cowardness or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I love myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who was doing these things. Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty or treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid, but it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. And I thought that was the best ever explanation of that saying. Now, what happens here? in the West, and specifically in America, and you guys see this in the United States, is we no longer have conversations. We just have disagreements and we split. And what I want to encourage you with is that is the cultural response. I saw a a follower of Christ had a podcast the other day that my wife and I listened to, and And on this podcast, she goes, if you disagree with what we're talking about, my staff is going to have a block party today. Meaning, if you come with an opposite viewpoint that was from Scripture and you wanted to have a discussion, her staff was going to block you from their social media page. 
And in the room, we can, we might even shake our heads like, wow, wow, that's crazy. But do we do that to people in our hearts? And what I would encourage the church this morning is this, that we do not respond in the way of the culture. We respond in the way of Christ. That it is okay to disagree and to have conversations. Because here's what the goal should be. We should be seeking after the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. We don't live a relative morality. We live a morality that is based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we can have discussions about that. Tragically, what we see is we see people walk out, and they don't walk out. They walk out, and then they walk out on relationship. So the relationship is blown up. And I would love to say this. In, the, in our modern day, the strength of our opinion I think in, when we have such a strong opinion, we are actually found to be fragile. Because if anybody comes against that opinion, I can't handle it. I can't have a conversation. And what I want to encourage you with, again, I'm going to continue to encourage you with this. If you're doing this, I don't know if you are or not, because I'm not on Facebook anymore. I go on there, I manage the church page, and I'm out. Why? Like I told you three years ago, because I want to like people okay, is this, okay? If you're posting stuff, here's what I want to encourage you. Post stuff about Jesus and the hope that's found in Him. Can I encourage you with that this morning? Because it is the only place where actual hope is going to come from. And so this style of dealing with people, of saying goodbye, and not even really saying goodbye, but more like, yeah, it's crept into the church, and the church is not a place for that. We are not to respond like the culture responds. We are to truly hate the sin and love the sinner. And here's what I would encourage you with, too, is don't weaponize that. Don't weaponize you are a sinner, because if you do, make sure when you're doing that, you're doing that in front of a mirror. Jesus said it like this. Oh, let me say this first, if you guys just deal with me this morning, it is this. It's hard. Now, Jesus didn't say this. Let's back up a little bit. It's hard for someone to hear the hope of Christ when all you're doing is yelling at them about their sin. It's hard for someone to hear the hope of Christ when all you're doing is yelling at them about their sin. Jesus says like this in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, on this great thing, which I just encourage you to read. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I just highly encourage you. Wow, you're telling us to read a lot of things. Yeah, do it. Psalm 139, 23 through 24, go home today and over the next couple days, read Matthew 5 through 7. Again, with that little prayer at the beginning, come Holy Spirit, He'll come, He'll meet you there. But Jesus says this, He says, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. 
The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls then turn and attack you. Wow, we had to break that down a little bit because it seems like it seems like Jesus went on a contradiction when he got everything was cool until verse six, and he says that he's like, "What's that all about?" All right, but here's what I would encourage you with: There's hope in this passage. It, 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 the hope in the passage is saying this that that you can actually. Through the transformational power of Jesus Christ, you can actually, the log can be taken out of your eye and you can actually help people or what's disciple people in the way of Christ. But first, deal with your own stuff. And of course, verse one's always used, right? Like if you're doing something wrong, it's like, don't judge me or you'll be judged, okay? Let me tell you something. If you're walking in a relationship with somebody and they're saying, hey, this thing that you're doing, I just want to check with you on that. That's not judgment, Okay, they're coming against me, bro. No, they're not. All right, if I, do I let all six of my children run wild in the streets? No, that's not loving someone. All right, that's letting someone run wild. But the difference is this, I'm in relationship with them. Jesus approaches, I mean, this is, he approaches... Uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, in love, in love and through conversation, that woman becomes the first evangelist. He didn't come over and said, yo, what are you doing? Five husbands? Really? Now the person you're living with? What are you doing with your life? You scum. He didn't do that. It was a relationship that was formed, and it was a it was a it was a short relationship, but it was the way that it was handled was in love. And so Jesus says, "Don't judge others." Hey, but there's hope. You can get the log out of your own eye as you're transformed by me. You're going to see that the log comes out of your own eye, and then you can help others. Because here's what I believe: by the time that that log is out of your eye, your heart is transformed, and you begin to see other people who have what's called the Imago Dei, the image of God, and you begin to treat them as such. And it's important to do that. Even if they, catch this, even if they disagree with you, even if they, uh, you know, have just a universe of difference in uh, what morality is, Jesus can use you and he'll transform their lives. And so, uh, don't waste what is holy on people who are holy. Um, listen, you're not going to just sit down and, and continue. If someone is completely resistant to the gospel, guess what you do? You love them. You love them well. And so, um, 
Good. Okay, so that's good. And then Belshazzar's blasphemy. Okay. Now, where do, and I just want to say, where does that take us? Daniel's response. I believe that the church is called to respond to people like Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar. Wow. I just, I just feel like I wish this wasn't for you. But, I mean, because he, he loved him and he showed him love. And I, I believe that's what we're supposed to do uh, as the church. I believe it's what we're called to do. Um, and then as we walk with people, what we can do is we can speak correction into people's lives. Um, I don't know how much has been changed in society by people sitting on a corner yelling at people about their sin. I doubt that communication has happened very many times uh, in that situation. It may have. I'm not saying. You might be in the room and say, well, my life was changed by that person. Okay, great. Uh, but the majority of the time, what we're going to do is we're going to deal with people in relationship and, and we're going to walk with them. And, uh, and so I just want to encourage you with that. Belshazzar's blasphemy and how Jesus steps up the game is our next section. I have a rhetorical offensive question for you this morning. It's very offensive, so please. Is this, how many of you, and I'm being serious when I say this, this is no comedy. I want to, I want to offend your mind because it's for a reason. How many of you have urinated on a cross or spray-painted a church building? Don't answer it. It's rhetorical. Someone in the back's like, yeah. Okay, we'll talk later. Okay, how many of you urinated on a cross or spray-painted a church building or maybe a statue of Jesus? I'm guessing if we were to send out an anonymous survey, um, the responses would be an overwhelming zero. Very few, right? And so, uh, so my next question, just as offensive, is how many of you have talked about a brother or sister in, in, of Christ in a negative, gossip-filled way ever? And my guess is, if we sent the same anonymous survey out, that that would near 100%. Near 100%. Definitely in the 90s. You know, and we could ask another question. How many of you have ever thought ill of any human being? And that one would probably be like 100% for sure. See, the problem, quote, problem faced in Christ is that through his death, <laughs> he kind of tore the curtain to the Holy of Holies. And he kind of through that, made God's presence available everywhere. And where we used to divide sacred and, uh, sacred and secular, what we see is that, that He is available everywhere. That you can have a sacred moment in aisle 13 at Walmart. I don't know what aisle that is. The dessert aisle, let's call it. Okay, you can have a sacred moment there. You can, you can pray. Uh, you can have a sacred moment in your home. You can have a sacred moment in the bar down the street. God can show up. The Holy Spirit, now check this out. Uh, he, Jesus promised this. The Holy Spirit dwells in those who call Him Lord, meaning that you and I are the temple of God.
I think through Christ, we should be challenged. We should be compelled then to love our enemies, to care for the earth, to love the people whom we disagree with, to love our families, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection has changed everything. Now, we can go to the other extreme, right? We can become fundamentalist, and you have to have it this way and do things this way, and we can become the modern-day Pharisees, and boom, and, and boom, 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 and we have to have everything just right. Or can we, we can respond in humility like Daniel did? And I believe that's our role as the church, is this, as, as we look at this and we say, well, what is our response supposed to be like? Respond with the words of life that can transform somebody's heart and mind. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. Uh, I want to tell you one thing is I've never saved one person. I've never healed one person. I've never transformed one person's heart. Now, the Holy Spirit has used me as a tool in the process of their change. And I want to encourage you with this, that transformation takes time. That when we set out to walk with somebody, that we're talking months, years. Look in your own life. If you've been following Christ for a while, is God still transforming you into His likeness? then why is the expectation that when someone comes to Christ that they are immediately transformed or where you're at? There's a hope found in Jesus Christ. I mean, look at your own life. If you're a follower of Christ, there's a hope found in Jesus Christ that is found nowhere else why would we not tell people about that message? Why, why wouldn't we see people that, that are, that are uh, immoral? Let's just say it, are immoral. Why would our hearts not, our hearts should say, oh, God, please draw them to you. Not, oh, God, look at, judge them, Lord. Like, it's not our place. And I believe that the time that we're in now, in any time in our history that we're alive in this room, right, we've never experienced what's going on right now in our nation, I, I think the answer to what are we supposed to do is the most obvious answer in the world. It's right now. And it's so simple, it hurts it's three syllables. It's three words. Be the church. And if you're thinking, I, but what do you mean? Like, how do I turn into a building? I would encourage you to read the New Testament. What does the church look like? I would encourage you to read a book like The Insanity of God or, or Mere Christianity, supplementing, okay? We're not, don't replace this with the Bible or don't replace the Bible with this, excuse me. Read the Word of God. What does the church look like? Well, we can't really meet anymore. Attendance is down, Andy. I was thinking as we were worshiping this morning, I was like, 
you're here, God. You're in this place right now. We're in the presence of the living God this morning. You can change. It doesn't matter if the room is full or if the room has a teen amount of people in it. You're here. Ah, the fog's got to be just right. And when Josh hits that one chord, that's when you're going to show up. You're here. Josh could sit on this stool and he could sing a cappella, and God is here in the room to change people. He can meet you in aisle 13 of Walmart because he's there to change people, to draw him to his self. He has not forgotten who he is. Let's change our perspective. The perspective that says, God, you can show up whenever, wherever you want to. Now, here's what the requirement of you and I is going to be, that then if that is our perspective shift, then we have to be available in the moment. We have to be available from getting, oh man, I'm I'm just getting my oil changed here in this place. Boom, God speaks, shows up. Boom, beg to come out, which is great if it happens, amazing. But what if the transformation of someone's heart begins as you talk to them about the living Christ? So be the church. Hold your tongue that you desperately want to give a verbal lashing even if you know you're right. Hold your tongue and love that person and have a discussion towards truth. If you know the truth is found in Jesus Christ, what are you worried about? And then I would tell you this, build the foundation of your life on humility. Humbly love people where they are, and you will draw people to Christ, and He will do that. He will use you to draw people. So our job is not to save people, it's not to judge people, it is to present the hope of Jesus Christ, to love people, to disciple people in their walk with Christ, and it doesn't matter if they're the, the most neophyte person. They're doing stuff with their lives and they're saying, I love Jesus, and in your heart you're saying, how? If they're saying they love Jesus, then walk beside them. And if you're yoked to Christ, pull them, just like Jesus does, because he's pulled you and I into his kingdom. Let us not forget where we started and then where we've come. God's got it. Dude, we have uh, three, two minutes left on the live stream, and then it's going to just cut off, okay? So <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm gonna pray, all right? And if you would, can we just stand? Is that okay? I'm going to hop down here. Mia, I don't know if that's going to, I'm just going to come down here. All right, God, come and have your way.
In Jesus' name, would you come and move and have your way? Would you help us to be more like you? Would you help us to say the things that you're leading us to say, to do the things that you're leading us to do, to submit our lives to you, every aspect, the things that we have closed the door to you, I pray that we would open the door and let you come in and have your way, that we can worship you in spirit and truth, that we can realize that every moment we're in is sacred because you have lived and died and you've been resurrected and you allow us to live in your resurrection. Would you come and move as we leave these four walls, as this live stream ends? Have your way. Let us be the church of Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.